Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. Welcome to Changing Conversations and tonight I'm delighted that we are joined by um, Guy Claxton. So Guy Claxton is someone who I first came across when I was an educational psychologist and came across your work around building learning power Um, and I remember being very excited a number of years ago to get a place on a session that you were delivering at Aberdeen University. I don't know if you remember. being. I do. Yes, yes I do indeed. And so I was delighted to get the opportunity um, to attend that session. And I think at that point, I also managed to have a quick word with you. And we we got you along to the annual conference for educational psychologists in Edinburgh, maybe a year or two later as well. So, yeah, that's right. And I also came and did something in a school in West Lothian, did I not? You did. You were in West Lothian, then you came across to us in Mid Lothian as well. So yes, we've, oh, okay. we've we've managed to get you get you a few times. <laughs> I, I I knew it was one Lothian or another. I know, I know it was both of them. So you were you were on the right track there. Um, so welcome, Guy, and it's lovely to have you here. But um, for any listeners who are not familiar with you and your work, can you just take a few minutes just to share some of some of that background with them? Uh, sure. Well. My, my background is uh, in experimental psychology. So I'm now, my, my sort of professional life is split between education, writing and uh, consulting and talking to conferences and so on in education. But also I keep up with my background in, um, in cognitive science and uh, particularly, I have a particular interest in what I call non-intellectual forms of intelligence, and particularly in, um, in the learnability, the malleability of intelligence, which sort of provides, in a way, the kind of scientific context or background for my work on, on learning power. Because I'm, I'm convinced that everybody's minds and young people's minds in particular are much more malleable. The sort of simplistic idea that how well you do in school is, is predetermined by your ability and how hard you try mm-hmm. is very 20th century, if not 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need a much more flexible view of what goes to make up intelligence and how schools can not just fill people's minds with stuff, but uh, enable them to think better and know better and learn better. Uh, so the two sort of strands of my life feed feed together, if you like. Although I I tend to keep the more theoretical stuff out of my 
my work in, uh, in, in education. I'm not sure if many teachers would be that interested in it, but a few are. Yeah, a few definitely are. And I, and I guess that's probably what attracted me originally to your work is that combination of both of those strands. And, and I keep revisiting your work and I keep referencing your work as well and continue to kind of explore what you're working on. And you've written loads of books over the years and you've written a lot about learning and the mind. And most recently, your book, uh, your most recent book is called The Future of Teaching and the Myths That Hold Us Back. So I'm interested, what's prompted this book just now? Well, um, it's again, it sort of, it goes back to the two sides of me, really. Mm -hmm. Most of my writing, as you know, Sarah, yes. is sort of advocational. It's like developing ideas that I think are well grounded in cognitive science, mm -hmm. but then finding ways to present them both in workshop form and in written form for teachers so that they're not just accessible, but also uh, very practical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, and I'm very interested. I'm, I'm really convinced that teaching is the, is teachers are never going to go out of style. We're never going to be replaced by computers. That what teachers do in face-to-face -face or online interactions with students are absolutely critical to the outcomes of education, particularly to the global attempt to try and find a 21st century pedagogy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so a lot of my writing has been how to kind of answer that question. But over the last 10 years or so, there have been, particularly in England, but also in different, I'm not so sure how much in Scotland, but particularly in England and, and around in different countries around the world, a strong, small, but very vocal lobby of people who have been arguing very strongly, uh, very stridently, that cognitive science mandates only one form of teaching, which is a rather extreme form of traditional approaches to teaching. The, the fundamental, one of the phrases they like to use is the fundamental architecture of the mind is a compatible only with what, in, what in, in English jargon I would call direct instruction in a knowledge-rich curriculum. So mm -hmm. an emphasis on the primacy of knowledge the impossibility or even absurdity of trying to teach skills or develop character in school mm -hmm. and the central role of the, the traditional teacher as a source of knowledge transmitting and quality ensuring that transmission to kids. Yeah. And this has achieved a lot of influence, particularly it's been particularly it's been catnip to right wing politicians, again, particularly in England, mm -hmm. uh, and also to right-wing journalists and influences of various kinds. And it's had quite a strong influence on the teaching profession. And I think it's had a malign influence in that it has, because, you know, most teachers are not expert in the claims that are being made. They don't have the time. Some of them don't have the inclination to go into the science. So, you know, they're, they're vulnerable to these strong, powerful, unequivocal, confident assertions about the mind. And that has undermined, undermined their confidence 
in more, much more dynamic, fluent, multivalenced, nuanced forms of pedagogy, which I think is where the action is, where the, where the excitement is in how to develop 21st century forms of pedagogy. So, I mean, to put it very simply, I think we need interesting, complex blends of explanation and exploration in classrooms. And what this group of, of traditional extremists are arguing is that exploration is a waste of time. And anyway, because kids are novices, they can't do it because they don't know enough. Uh, so the only thing that's legitimate in school is explanation. And anything that carries a whiff like discovery learning or problem-based learning or inquiry learning, all of these things gets lumped together and treated as if they were um, absurd or anti-scientific or particularly, and I think these arguments are, are heartfelt, that they particularly disadvantage children who are already disadvantaged mm -hmm. by, as it were, distracting from the, from the transmission of cultural capital or you know, high quality, uh, high status knowledge. By distracting from that, we disadvantage those children. And they present a lot of their arguments are highly polarized. So, you know, we can't do both. So my book is an attempt, it's a critical attempt to draw on the cognitive science that I know, yeah. which, is, which I think is pretty up to date and pretty broad range to push back against this narrow and in some ways antiquated, cherry picked model of cognitive science, which is used to support this strong contention. Mm. And who have you written the book for? Who are you? Who do you want to read it? Oh, the 99% the of hardworking, thoughtful classroom teachers and school leaders who are not ideologically wedded to either extreme progressivism or extreme trad traditionalism. Mm -hmm. My particular beef, I mean, I acknowledge cheerfully that there are lots of faults with the more extreme versions of progressivism. And this book is not a veiled attempt to, to weigh in on behalf of progressives mm -hmm. uh, against traditionalism. It, but because this lobby has been so influential in shaping educational policy, as I say, particularly in England, uh, they're the group that I spend most of my time analyzing and critiquing the claims, the knowledge base on which these claims are, are founded. So I want all teachers to read this book, heave a sigh of relief and say, oh, thank goodness, that doesn't mean we have to revert to this old fashioned one-sided model of teaching. We can be exploratory, experimental, nuanced in the middle type people. And the science says that's fine. Mm. And what sort of response are you getting to the book so far? Uh, pretty, pretty positive on the whole. And as you might expect, some pretty strident, vociferous, belligerent pushback on behalf of some of the people who are, who are um, critiqued in the book. Uh, I have a, a delightful student, a young woman called Molly, who is my digital curator. I'm an old dog, so there are all kinds of social media tricks that I'm unable or unwilling to learn. 
and Molly is under strict instructions to feed back to me only the good stuff. It's it's bad for my peace of mind to get too involved in the in the in people who will never be convinced. The book is I, I have no hope and no intention of convincing the hardliners. My target audience, as I say, is people who are wavering, who feel that they've been influenced or that their intuitions have been undermined by mm. this tool. Those are the people who I want to get, because those are the people who will be the classroom placemakers of 21st century pedagogy, which, you know, different con constituencies around the world are busily trying to create, and it exists. It, 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 it exists. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you could point me to shining examples in Scotland. I could point you to shining examples in England, to the XP school in uh, Doncaster, to a whole lot of mainstream schools, to not necessarily alternative schools at all, to the EL education schools, the expeditionary learning schools in the USA. There are lots of proof of concept schools that this mixture of explanation and exploration is perfectly feasible, perfectly practical on the ground, and it helps kids get better results. And at the same time, as it builds qualities of what I call when I'm feeling fancy, epistemic character. That's to say, a sort of deep down confidence and capability for dealing with all the sort of complexities and frustrations that life is going to throw at people. So, you know, I, I, I think it was, so someone had to do this job of pushing back and I didn't really want to do it, but I didn't see anybody else doing it. So I thought, oh, well, I better roll up the sleeves and, and write an adversarial book, uh, uh, which I've never done before, because usually, as I say, I'm much more comfortable writing advocational types of things. So it's quite an interesting exercise for me. And I learned a lot from engaging with, with, with the people I'm critiquing. Well, as a head teacher, um, someone who's been working with young people for over 20 years, I'm glad you did. That, that debate and discussion, you, you will hear it in staff rooms and um, round meeting tables in Scotland as well as all around the world. And we have listeners to this podcast everywhere. And I think mm -hmm. people will recognise that, that debate that can bring out really polarised views about knowledge versus skills. Um, but yes, I, I, it's it's all it's ver it's all versus, isn't it? Yeah, it's all you I, know, knowledge versus skills or relevance versus rigor. It's like yeah. people, are, you know, it, it's like arguing with simpletons, you know, like people who can only cope with a black and white view of the world. Yeah, you know, and I wanted you know to to run a flag up the flagpole and say, you know, let let's hear it for people who can think beyond two. We had a lot of dialogue around this in Scotland when Curriculum for Excellence was first incorporated, which mm. moved us, you know, on a policy level from the traditional knowledge receptor type model, transmission yep. teacher, um, to something that aspired to be something different. So I would like to think that um, most practitioners in Scotland are nodding along with many of your words. Mm -hmm. But also, I think, Billy, if I can, if I can, if I can just add, I think in in England with the um, what was it called, personal learning and thinking skills, mm -hmm. in some other countries like New Zealand and Singapore and Australia, and I wouldn't venture to to 
pass judgment because I don't know well enough in Scotland. I think an awful lot of energy went into creating wish lists of the kinds of characteristics that we wanted young people to have. Yeah. And people thought that they'd done 80% of what needed doing by laboring over those wish lists. And I think with experience, we realized that they'd only done 5% of what needed doing and what was often missing um, and rightly attracted attention for being a bit idealistic was detailed discussion of the pedagogical shift that is required to deliver on these desirable, this expanded portfolio of desirable outcomes, if you like. Yeah. I don't know if you want to kind of, you know, comment on the curriculum of excellence because I'm, I'm not really up to date with how it's going in Scotland. Well, I think in terms of what you're seeing there, I think we've seen a lot of progress in the curriculum because it is the clues in the title, but the mm. biggest pro progress that I've probably witnessed is the change in pedagogy that the changing principles of the curriculum have led in the classroom. Um, but I, I'm also interested in your view, and this might be controversial, but as a class teacher myself, it's easier to teach in the transmission mode than the more creative mode. I wonder if that plays a factor. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I didn't put this in the book, but I think, you know, I have some sympathy with the people whose views I'm um, critiquing. And it's interesting and kind of, you know, reading a little bit, you know, I make this only tentatively um, because I haven't, I, I don't have a lot to back it up. But I think some of those people are, are sort of disappointed or disenfranchised progressives or idealists. I think, several of them were people who went into teach in difficult areas, often inner city, multicultural, schools of deprivation, with high ideals, and initially rather sympathetic to progressive ideals, tried it out with kids, and didn't get a very good response. And instead of saying to themselves, perhaps these kids weren't ready for this, or perhaps I misjudged it, or perhaps I have something to learn, like skills to develop in order to do this. Perhaps I didn't do it very well. They just jumped from that dispiriting experience into it's crap, it doesn't work, mm -hmm. and then went looking for some kind of justification for that. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know whether that rings true with you, but I do think, and I didn't say this clearly enough in the book, you have to be really, well, I, I, I said it a little bit, you have to start where the kids are and doing the kind of pedagogy that the learning power approach or EL education or whatever, doing that pedagogy is subtle and sophisticated and requires a platform of, to use the jargon, self-regulation in the kids, which you can then build on, which then becomes a launch pad for teaching in ways that are more, much more variegated and which gradually hand over to kids more responsibility and more independence 
to use their imaginations and to sort things out for themselves because they can build on the skills that they have. If you have a room full of kids who don't know how to sit still, who don't know how to listen to each other, who don't know how to disagree politely or respectfully with each other, I have a lot of sympathy with, for example, Michaela, a famous school in, in, in London, which takes kids, a lot of whom don't have these basic skills of socialization and drums it into them. They're quite rigorous. You know, they talk proudly about boot camp to get kids to the point where they can behave politely and quietly uh, and respectfully with each other and towards teachers in the classroom. The trouble with Michaela and with some of the traditionalists is they stop there. They think that kind of disciplined, heavily disciplined, heavily regulated teaching is not just necessary as the launch pad, but it is actually a dis the, 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 the be all and end all of pedagogy. Whereas I see it as kind of unnecessary laying the foundations if those foundations were not already laid uh, reliably by the kids upbringing. So I, I should have said this more clearly in the book, that yes, it is a sophisticated form of pedagogy. You need to move slowly uh, and take the kids with you. And if you move too quickly, I, I talk about this in some of the Learning Power Approach books, particularly the book that we did for school leaders, about how you have to move gradually. This is, it's like, you know, if you try revolution rather than evolution, it doesn't work. But I didn't say as, as loudly and as clearly as I could that you have to be careful, you have to judge your audience. And this is a, this is a developmental process for teachers who have to be willing to go on that journey to develop their professional skills uh, uh, over time. Yeah, wise, wise message. Well, let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into the myths that you, you mentioned. What are the myths that you feel are holding innovation back well, there's a whole whole string of them in the book. Um, I don't have it under my nose at the moment, but there, but there, there's a it, the terminology carries a lot of presuppositions with it. Like the, the the words that this lobby that I call slightly pejoratively the Dicker lobby, which stands for D I K R, stands for direct instruction slash knowledge rich. That that, that, that that lobby, so they're very interested, they're very strong on knowledge. And they often write, like Daisy Christodoulou's book, Seven Myths in Education, which is where I took the myths idea from. She writes as if knowledge was a collection of largely isolated facts. And that's just ridiculous. I mean, there are some that, that there is a small pocket, there is a small corner of the field that we might want to call knowledge, which is which is granulated facts of that kind. The, you know, the kings and queens of England or, you know, learning your times tables maybe of that kind. But they have almost nothing to say about understanding. It's all about knowledge. It's all about getting, getting knowledge into long-term memory. Yeah. And some you know and, and most teachers have a much more nuanced view of knowledge it's interesting i had a very interesting conversation with dylan william who very generously agreed to write a forward for my book having written very supportive forwards for some of these other books 
that I'm critiquing. Dylan and I, we can disagree agree about a lot of things and we can disagree politely because we're old friends we we mm. as he says in his beautiful forward for my book you know we, we we go back a long way but he you know he said you know he talks a lot about supporting the idea of knowledge but his view of knowledge embraces a lot of know-how as well as know that it is what the what the boffins call procedural knowledge as well as as well as declarative knowledge and I would want knowledge to include intuitive knowledge, the knowledge that poets trade in, uh, or and indeed scientists. You know, there's very interesting research showing that Nobel Prize winning scientists, almost to a man and a woman, will talk uh, enthusiastically will, about the way they prized and valued their intuition as part of their scientific program. Now, this is, it's not just random gut feeling this is highly as it were educated intuition but there's not much scope for that in the kind of hard line you know facts and facts and facts kind of thing so some people like tom sherrington who is a a, a more nuanced traditionalist pushes back against my book because he says of course people don't really in practice believe this hard line extremist thing but, uh, but what I'm critiquing in the book is, is the published works of people who are presenting precisely that point of view, that extremist point of view. And there are a lot of people around, myself included, who have a deep respect for knowledge, although what knowledge is, I think, you know, a critically important question that we ought to be asking. The, the assumption that somehow or other the eternal verities of the traditional school subjects constitute 95% of what it is that kids need to know in order to prosper in the 21st century it seems to me to be highly suspect. And books like David Perkins, who's one of my gurus, and I know has, has done a lot of work uh, in Scotland as well to support the development of, of, of uh, the curriculum for excellence. His book, Future Wives, is a wonderfully lucid and nuanced and open-minded exploration of exactly what kind of knowledge it is that most young people are likely to need to know. And what, if you go back to basics, if you start uh, from that question, you end up in a very different place from simultaneous equations and the Tudors and or the Stuarts, as you would call them, and the and the and ionic and covalent bonding and uh, and all the stuff that, that are the sort of the holy cows of the traditional curriculum. So knowledge is one thing, and then Knowledge leads on to, it's like getting knowledge into long-term memory. So like a, a model of, of memory, which, and again, the word memory is treasured and is trotted out a lot. And so they, that, so at the heart of this view, the, the cognitive science view on which a lot of the Dicker arguments rest, of what they call the, the architecture of cognition, was a model of memory which was first floated in a paper uh, by two Americans, Atkinson and Schifrin in 1967, I believe, and then developed by um, Alan uh, Baddeley and uh, a, a young researcher called Graham Hitch, both of whom were, are, are friends of mine. And Graham Hitch and I were, were um, contemporaries of right, the same cohort do, when we were doing our, our PhDs in, in um, Psychology. So I was a young researcher at the time that this model was new. 
uh, and it derived very largely from an analogy that was exciting a lot of people in cognitive psychology between the human mind and the digital computer. If you open up a computer, you do indeed find a, a, a random access memory and a central processor, and they're physically distinct from the hard drive. Uh, they, they can be separated, and there are processes that, that literally shuttle um, electronic forms of information between the two of them. And, and uh, that the, the, uh, the, the RAM and the central processor have a limited capacity. So that model became like the working metaphor that drove a lot of research for probably 20 years or so, but from the, from the late 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. But even early on, that model was being challenged. And the, 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 the metaphor of storage, uh, of separate stores, like a warehouse or a library or the computer hard drive, was being challenged. The founding father of cognitive psychology, a man called Ulrich Neisser, back in 1973 or 74, I think, wrote a book called Cognition and Reality, in which he, he poked fun, he ridiculed models of this kind, which were just boxes drawn on a piece of paper with arrows running between them of, of a very simple kind. The, the, the model that you'll find in Daniel Willingham's book, which he describes as just about the most simple of the model, simple most, sorry, just about the most simple model of the mind that you could have. And not only is it the most simple, it is simplistic and it's now I think pretty widely judged to be erroneous. I consulted Alan Badley, the surviving godfather of working memory, whose intellectual autobiography is called Working Memory because he spent his life working on memory. His model now of, of memory is much more complex, much more nuanced than the idea that everything you learn has to be squeezed through this narrow throat, this narrow bottleneck into long-term memory. And then somehow argument is hard to comprehend that the more you ram facts into long-term memory, the more you mitigate this narrow funnel that is, that is required by working memory. So the fundamental metaphor is now really challenged in, in cognitive science. We, we have now have much more nuanced biological models of, of memory in which long-term memory you can equate with the whole complex neural network in your mind. And working memory is now conceived as transient, highly circumscribed forms of activity within that network. Now that's a very different model. Those patterns of activity can be expanded, they can be contracted. You can give neural um, uh, rationales for why under very particular circumstances, it looks like our capacity for learning new information is limited. But those limits hardly apply in most lessons in most schools. If you're discussing the, a poem, let's say The Snake by D.H. Lawrence, you don't experience short-term working, working memory limitations. You're thinking, you're arguing, you're understanding what other people are saying, you're agreeing, you're disagreeing. There isn't this kind of, you know, cueing effect, which prevents you 
engaging with the material that's, that's going under your nose, and in history, and in geography, and in drama, uh, let alone PE or dance or, or sports and games and so on. So a narrow model which suits certain, even within maths and science, certain very limited types of learning is, is presented as if it were the be all and end all of learning full stop, which has to apply across the whole spectrum in school. And, and it's the ground, the claim that this is grounded in cognitive science, which, is, which has been so dangerous because it's difficult for people to push back against that. You know, they claim it, they, these people are claiming not only the moral high ground, that somehow or other traditional teaching is better if it revolves around the best that's been thought and said, but the scientific high ground, that there is no psychological justification for any other kind of teaching. So I, I hope that gives you a, a bit of a flavor of the argument. It, it certainly does. And I think it, it, it highlights the complexity of, of teaching. And I think mm. it highlights the complexity of the information that's out there for teachers. And it's how they navigate all these different books and writers and bits of research and how they then make sense of that in their own practice. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and claims of the kind that I'm pushing back against can be highly intimidating because they're presented with the utmost confidence, the utmost authority. And some, you know, and there are some academics who, who are, you know, have been powerfully supporting. Daniel Willingham is a bit more nuanced. Mm -hmm. um, he's now recanted on his original claims that there's no such thing as general thinking skills. Mm -hmm. uh, he's now said, you know, I was wrong about that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but there are people who from the academic community who yeah. are arguing for this antiquated uh, model of the mind. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and even if it's not completely refuted, it is highly contested now. Mm. It is inaccurate and misleading to present it as if it was somehow, you know, 50, 60 years ago, the fundamental truth about the mind was discovered and that's it, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's like, it's just ridiculous, you know, that nothing of any fundamental interest has happened in cognitive science in the last 30 years. Yeah. That's complete bunkum. <laughs> so with all that in mind, what role could or should experimentation and creativity play in, in our schools, in our classrooms? Well, it needs to play, a, a, absolutely, it needs a powerful role, but mm -hmm. not a kind of sentimental creativity. You know, that's that's falling back in, you know, that's jumping going out of the frying pan into the fire, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, you know, I I don't think the 1960s and 70s were ever as misguided and laissez-faire as the traditional lobby paint them. But there certainly were was some naivety and there were some excesses of, you yeah. know, say, you know, the sort of the, the, the Rousseauian idea that any form of discipline or constraint is an insult to these delicate little spirits that are growing and should be allowed to be nurtured naturally in their own way. That's as inaccurate as the Lord of the Flies image of, mm -hmm. of child is, is, is inaccurate. Kids need to, be, need to 
develop socialization. You know, they need to learn how to get on with other kids. They need to, you know, learn how to disagree respectfully with each other. And these are things that can be learned, can be dealt with. We can, we can run workshops for those in school. You know, you go to schools, even in difficult or deprived areas of London, like School 21, for example, is a shining example uh, that I visited uh, a while ago and sat with my mouth open in a class of six, six and seven year olds, many of them for whom English was not their first language, many of them from complex or highly deprived uh, backgrounds, discussing Islamic terrorism, many of them coming, coming from Islamic families, with incredible respect and delicacy and articulacy. There'd just been, there'd been something in the news that morning. They mm. were having a debate about it. And they could do that because they'd been coached to. Mm. So I think, you know, our 21st century pedagogy revolves a lot around it's not by any means laissez-faire it's not we're all running around being creative right there is there is this you know there are elements of creativity and we move towards greater autonomy greater independence greater mm -hmm. creativity greater self-reliance that's mm -hmm. where we want to help children get to i think because that's what they're going to need out in the big wide world yeah um but that doesn't mean we start from there so so what, uh, what I'm arguing for, which uh, surprisingly, when you look back, has been largely missing, apart from Piaget, is a developmental approach to the curriculum and particularly to pedagogy. It's like how we move kids on, how we build character, epistemic character, with them gradually, but, but in a focused and targeted way. Mm -hmm. You know, school is a place that we're deliberately designed to help or require kids to become certain kinds of people. Mm -hmm. It's a moral enterprise. You can't get away from that. It's not just a technical enterprise. School is saturated with value judgments about what's better or worse. Is Mozart better than the Pogues? Is, is Dryden better than J.K. Rowling? It's like you can't get away from it. So, you know, you have to start from, from acknowledging those judgments and then saying, how do we build, how do we create cultures that nurture the development of those characteristics, which include knowledge, which include literacy and numeracy, but which in the complex world of the 21st century are ambitious to develop other aspects of other, other character strengths, we might say, uh, along, with, along with those other things. So yes, creativity and experimentation, we gradually increase the amount of that, that kids can handle, that they develop under our guidance, the maturity to use those capacities well, and to use them in a disciplined kind of way. Um, uh, and um, and experimentation too, but also uh, as I'm as I'm sure part of your question, Sarah, is implying, creativity and experimentation amongst teachers also is absolutely critical. The school leaders play a powerful role role for good or ill in creating a culture which legitimates and encourages 
uh, and wishes for in for to to develop experimentate pedagogical experimentation in the workforce. It, so where there's and, and where teachers, the school leaders, have an idea of wanting how to where they want the culture of their schools to grow towards and how they are going to have to become experimental creative communities of, of continual reflection and improvement in order to get to that place. You can't just you know, design a new form of pedagogy, pedagogy and plop it into schools. We've tried that and it doesn't work. You know, schools have to be places, they're complex human institutions and school leaders have to be canny nurturers, creators of that culture in which teachers too see, see themselves as confident, respected learners in their, in their classrooms. So the learning power approach, as I call it, is, a, is a, like a multi-leveled, I sometimes refer to it as a, as a backlover philosophy because it has lots of layers to it. And, you know, and one of them is professional development, and one is pedagogy, and one is curriculum, and uh, interdisciplinary projects, and one another is relationship with parents, and another is how we organize assessment in our schools. So it's a complex endeavor, but the different people around the world that I've been trying their work, I've been trying to bring together under the broad umbrella of the learning power approach, which is much bigger than building learning power, which was just my little brand. Um, but that, you know, we, we, there is now an incredibly well-developed, well-grounded and tried and tested body of, of practice, of practical knowledge about how this can be done. And I'm, you in Scotland are also way ahead of knowing what that looks like, I'm afraid, in England. England is one of the most backward, one of, one of the most disadvantaged cultures in the world, I think, as far as the development of pedagogy is concerned, because it, it is bedeviled politically by a, a predisposition by many politician, politicians towards this naive, polarized traditionalism. Uh, and we have, to, we have to get over that. And, and with that central con control and top-down policymaking, as you've touched on, so that it leads you on, it leads us on nicely to an area that we want to get your views on, which is the area of empowerment of school leaders and teachers within education. It's a journey that we are on in Scottish education. It's not particularly felt like that over the past 12 to 18 months for obvious reasons. Um, so what would your advice be as we hopefully renew and emerge from a very operational mode to a system that, that truly embraces autonomy, agency and, and empowerment at all levels? Well, we're in the middle of missing a golden opportunity, I'm afraid, aren't we? You know, we had in England this fancy slogan, how our politicians love their, love, love their sound bites. We must build back better. Mm, yeah. Well, I don't see much evidence of it. I don't see much thought leadership coming out of the Department for Education in Whitehall. I don't know how things are in Scotland, but I'm afraid that 
that people are building back the same. I mean, these kind of naives, like we just want a longer school day or we have to have more tutoring. The opportunity to stop and think and say, you know, we've had a real challenge through COVID to our model of education. I mean, I say, running, running workshops now, I say, you know, how lockdown ready were your kids? What had, what had you done before the first lockdown to get them ready to be able to cope with a sudden escalation in the degree of independence and autonomy which was thrust upon them in their learning? Some of them will have fared well if they, if, if, if they have the right, you know, if they're lucky enough to have the right home background or the right kind of school, they will have been ready for it. Schools that I've worked with, one in Sydney, uh, the, the head teacher there, lovely, lovely woman, sent me a, uh, some snippets from a questionnaire that she sent to all their, all their kids, like aged from four to 18, when they, when they went into home learning about their attitudes and how they cope, cope for it. And they were fantastic. They said, I, little six-year-old saying, I was a bit nervous, but I was really looking forward to it because it was going to be a new adventure, right? And my mum and dad helped me organize my working space and, and now I've developed my routine. It's like they really rose to the challenge. But other kids were just left, their parents didn't know what to do, or their parents over, parents tried to turn into mini teachers yeah. and replicate what was going on in school. So when those different kinds of kids came back into school after the first lockdown, they had very different experiences. So for me, you know, like the, 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 the really urgent question was, so what did we learn from that about how, some, how, how and why some kids prospered and some didn't? And what are we going to do differently now so that more, many more of our kids are much better prepared for the next lockdown? You know, we're now looking at the third lockdown. What have our schools been doing to get kids ready so that they will use their time more in a more self-disciplined, imaginative, mature, responsible, experimental, creative kind of way than they did before. You know, that seems to me that that question is just staring us in the face. The need for those qualities, for the development of those attributes couldn't be more obvi obvious. They're as plain as the nose on your face. Yet I don't hear our politicians talking much about that. And I'm afraid I don't hear some head teachers talking about it either. And there is a kind of, a, you know, unfortunately, too broadly, I, mean, I don't want to tire everybody with the same brush, a kind of collective and in some ways catastrophic collapse of imagination uh, at the moment. And I think that's, you know, that's, it, it's a real tragedy that more people aren't taking this opportunity to think more deeply and imaginatively about what a real 21st century education should look like. And if you were to leave our listeners then with a question that you would encourage them to think about or explore as a, as a school community and as a team, what, what might that question be? Uh, well, I think, I mean, the, the, that, that question that I've just posed, you know, take that question seriously, swallow it like the Zen, Zen people call it a koan, you know, like you're given when you're a Zen trainee, you're given an, an impossible question. 
and, and they say you have to work at this question as if you'd swallowed a red hot cannonball. You have to, it has to kind of burn you from inside. So I would like every school leader, every common room to be burning with that question. What do we need to do differently in order to get our kids to be better lockdown learning ready the next time an, an epidemic hits for us? What small tweaks, what small developments? How do we, how do we strengthen uh, that culture of continuous improvement? I mean, I've got Zen on the mind at the moment, I don't know why, but I'm very persuaded by, this is a, like a popular notion in the business world, a, a Japanese idea called Kaizen, mm. which is big in a lot of Japanese firms. It's about a culture of small scale continuous improvements. It's what Dave Brailsford could call his concept of marginal gains. Yeah. Like that every teacher in every classroom is thinking quizzically about, you know, I wonder why I did it like that way. I wonder why it didn't go very well. I wonder if I did it this way. Perhaps I'll do it a little bit differently next time. Perhaps mm -hmm. if I reorganize the furniture a little bit, perhaps if I put the resources in, uh, set them out in a slightly different way, perhaps if I tweak my language a little bit, let's try it and see. Mm -hmm. And there's a constant ethos of supportive, imaginative, tinkering our way forward, which I think is the only, the only grounded way, mm -hmm. the only rooted way that we're going to get system change, that we're going, we're only going to get uh, embedded culture change in our schools. Otherwise, you know, it's either going to be back to business as usual, folks, or it's going to be desperately looking around for the next magic bullet, the next silver bullet, the next kind of, you know, magic, you know, blended learning or, yeah. or uh, goodness knows what, you know, the next, the next package thing that comes along is. So school leaders and school teachers, you know, I would, I would like you to live you know, to have an enormous poster in the staff room and splattered all around the school and on every piece of information, every email or every bit of paper that goes to parents saying, we are living with this question. What does it take? What do we need to do to make our kids learning lockdown ready for the next time? Because they're sure as hell are going to be more viruses more if the scare stories about all these unregulated experimental toxicology laboratories that are blossoming around the world, whether or not Wuhan Virology Institute was the source of COVID-19 mm -hmm. or not, you know, there are dangers out there. This is not the last of the, of the epidemics. Yeah. So, you know, wake up education and, you know, think about not just getting kids to good universities mm. you know that's too small an ambition now we mm. have to live with this bigger question and you know let alone you know all the critical thinking stuff about fake news you know they can do it in finland mm. i read a, a newspaper article the other day it says you know it's like dealing with fake news is now across the curriculum across mm. the whole school system in finland you go into, I don't know if this is true, but it, it claimed in this article that you go into any primary school in Finland and any class of six or seven year olds can tell you the difference between disinformation, misinformation and malinformation. Mm -hmm. And they spend time regularly every day analyzing things on the news or mm -hmm. claims that are around so that their critical antennae are being tuned. They're developing not just the skill, but the disposition 
to be more critical consumers of knowledge. What could be more important than that? Well, mm -hmm. that's another big challenge to have on your notice board or on your website as a school. What are we doing to, to equip kids with what Ernest Hemingway called the built-in shockproof crap detector <laughs> that was pretty useful for novelists when Hemingway wrote those words, I don't know when, back in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely essential survival equipment for every sentient being on this planet in the year 2021. Yeah. So come on, schools. How are you? How are you going to prepare kids for that? Mm. If they can do it in Finland, they can do it in Forest and Aberdeen. They can and, indeed. And, and Aberfeldy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good shout outs there for Forest and Aberfeldy and other. <laughs> um, but you've certainly given us plenty to think about, and I would, um, you know, having referenced your work over many years now, encourage people to dip into the books you've written so far, but also to 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 use your latest book as a as a kind of map or a roadmap to help us navigate some of these claims and assumptions that can be misleading and can send us off in the wrong directions. And I think it's a, a, a brilliant contribution to the education book landscape and, and to our knowledge as well. And thank you for rolling up your sleeves and getting on with it, as you said at the beginning there. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for those kind words, Sarah. And thank you, Sarah and Billy, for the, the opportunity to strut my stuff, as they used to say. and. Um, rant a little but hopefully try and you know put the record straight and rebalance some of the uh some of the ideas that have been around recently and mm. give teachers back try and break up some of the logjam of innovation mm. that is so urgently needed in schools and give teachers back their courage and their confidence and their creativity to be innovators in their own classrooms yeah brilliant thank you we we always finish our podcast with the same three questions so i hope you're ready for these difficult questions the first one is what did you want to be when you were growing up well uh i i thought about this you gave me advance warning of this Sarah and mm -hmm. I, and I I went through various things, but in my sort of early between about I don't know, ten and fourteen, I really wanted to be a drummer. Mm -hmm. I I fell in love. You 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 won't remember this, but there there was a one of the first seven inch records that I bought, singles they used to be called a mm -hmm. seven inch single was was a, a, a record called Let There Be Drums by a drummer called Sandy Nelson. Mm -hmm. And I can still hear it yeah. drumming, drumming in my in my in my head. I don't know if you have, have you ever heard it? Does it ring any I, bells for you? You're too young. Bells, but I'll Google yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> there are there are lots of very good people doing that doing that drum solo. Um, I, I looked it up by, by chance uh, on the internet the other day. It's great. So I never made it as a drummer. Um, and then I, then I wanted to be a, tr a trumpeter. I fell in love with Miles Davis. Mm. Um, the second, second record, yeah. record I, I ever bought when I was about 12 with, with my own money. 
was a, a an EP of Miles Davis uh, called Straight No Chaser, which mm-hmm. has four takes of uh, of an album called Kind of Blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I wanted to be a trump a trumpeter, and I never made it as a trumpeter either. <laughs> um, so those were those were thwarted ambitions. And then towards the end of my time at school, I wanted to be a science teacher. Oh. Um, I loved science, and I and I went to university intending to to study chemistry, mm-hmm. with uh, with the intention of going on to be a chemistry teacher. And I I did work a little bit before I went uh, went to university. I worked a bit as a chemistry teacher, but I went back to my old school. Um, I was invited back to teach, I can't believe it now, O-level and, and first year A-level chemistry when I, when I only just left school the previous, the, the, the previous summer. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that was, uh, that, that, that was what, so I, you know, and then, then, you know, I discovered that chemistry was too hard, basically, you just <laughs> had to remember lots of stuff. Um, and uh, luck- I, luckily, I went to Cambridge, where you could do lots of different things. You could sort mm-hmm. of pick and mix your subjects. So I discovered psychology. Yeah. Uh, I was like a duck to water. I just yeah. fell in love with psychology, and then that that took me on my current path. Yeah. Wow. An early musician, then. <laughs> yeah, I still love my music, though. Good. Good. Um, and of course, I can see you at the moment in the in the room that you're in. I can see you're surrounded by books, but we're interested mm-hmm. to know what what are you reading at the moment, whether for work or pleasure. Well, on my Kindle and my my bedside table mm-hmm. uh, at the moment are um, three books. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is in decreasing order of difficulty. The first is a new book by A.C. Grayling, a philosopher, called The Frontiers of Knowledge, mm-hmm. which is really interesting review. He particularly uh, goes in in detail into science, history and psychology mm. and explores the development of knowledge in those subjects. Mm-hmm. But particularly what drew me to the book was that his exploration is as much about how as we learn more so we discover how little we know Mm. so the book is about how much we don't know yeah um and about how we can begin to articulate our own ignorance more more powerfully and i like grayling as a as a writer i think he's very good the second book and i really want to do a shout out for this book for for teachers is a book by a friend of mine called david price Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if he's done any work in Scotland or he's been around. He's an ex-music teacher, but is an independent consultant and author like me now. Yeah. And this book is called The Power of Us. Mm-hmm. And it's a whole lot of case studies of the power of collective creativity, uh, thinking and decision making. Okay. And what he's brilliant at, his previous book was called Open which was about new ways in which people are organizing learning. And this is about new ways in which people are organizing creative, collaborative projects mm-hmm. together, both through the internet and, uh, and, and, and in person. And there are very powerful lessons in that book. Again, really powerful challenges for mm-hmm. what, we do, what, what we do in school. It's just a really easy read. He writes like a dream. I always go for people who write well. I can't, I'm too old. I can't be bothered to read (laughs) stuff that is turgid and tedious. 
Um, so that's David Price, The Power yeah. of Us, and his earlier book called Open. I strongly recommend both mm -hmm. of those books. Um, really, really, really good. And the other book I'm reading at the moment is a thriller. Uh, and I can't for the light, which is on my Kindle, but it's about the development of poisons in laboratories in Russia. Ah. <laughs> uh, it, it, and and it, it's about the, the way in which one of these chief sort of developers of the mm. biological poisons. So it's back to me talking about the virology labs around the world, which is a bit of a bee in my bonnet at the moment. Yeah. So it's about how one of these one of these scientists defects to an unnamed country, uh, mm. and then the other agents of the Russian state are trying to track him down. It's really interesting. So there's lots of interesting science in yeah. it as well so that's my that, that's my my range of reading at the moment always good to have a few books on the go as well <laughs> so the last thing do you have a quote or a message you would like to leave our listeners with oh uh i i i think i've said it before it's just mm. you know don't be frightened to think deeply about what's going on in your school i'd say if, i'll speak to your listeners as if they were mainly school teachers and school leaders. I think, certainly from my from bitter experience in England, that 21st century education is going to be made in schools. It's not gonna be made in university departments of education or in research centers or in government policy centers. Certainly not in England, it's not. It's going to be innovation is going to, is going to happen at the chalk face. So whatever the constraints are from government or from regulatory bodies or from policymakers or from noisy traditionalists, mm -hmm. don't lose heart. Be brave, be imaginative, be adventurous as you as much as you dare to be in your school and you won't regret it. Mm. Lovely. Lovely note to end us on and resonates with with many of the conversations we've had over this time as well. So thank you, Guy. Um, and as always, a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, likewise. Very good. Thank you for listening, folks. We really value you taking the time and space to join us. And we hope that you take something positive from it. We'd love to hear your reflections, so please get involved via Twitter or contact us directly by email. Thanks again, stay safe and take good care.